You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. All right, all right. Welcome, everyone. It is good to see you. Welcome to Providence Community Church. Uh, my name is Eric, if you don't know me. Um, just want to kind of go over a few things to get started. One, welcome. Like Brendan said, it's so good to be here in person together. Uh, so we're very happy that you decided to join us today uh, here and also online. Um, a few uh, just kind of housekeeping rules I want to go over really fast. Just some guidelines for us as we kind of consider social distancing. Uh, one is to just kind of respect uh, everyone's space. I-, I know we're all kind of on different uh, places, but no unwanted hugs, anything like that, okay? So let's just kind of respect the social distancing. Uh, also, there's uh, only three people to the restroom at one time. So if you walk in and you were the fourth person, you've now broken the rule, so you would step back out and you would wait for one person to leave, okay? We're not going to give you a violation for breaking the rule, but we'd appreciate it, uh, three to the restroom. Uh, also, uh, the mom's room is closed, but if you need to make use of the mom's room, any kids going crazy, uh, we have a designated area in the multi-purpose uh, right outside these doors that you can go. There's a lot of space, uh, and you can be there and utilize that. And then also, uh, just as we kind of dismiss, we just ask that any conversations will be held uh, outside in the parking lot. So we're going to make our best to do an orderly exit as we leave here. Uh, So we appreciate you guys respecting that. Let me know if you have any questions. Um, Outside of that, welcome to Providence Community Church. As we always say, we are a people that are voted to a a single vision, and uh, that is to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city. And to that end, every single week, we open up our Bibles because we believe that the Word of God has everything we need to know, worship, and obey Jesus Christ. Amen. So we love it. Uh, We've been in a series called Consider Jesus. We started this just as kind of quarantine was happening. Uh, And towards the back end, we've kind of been looking at some of the resurrection stories of Jesus Christ. And so today, our text is going to be found in the book of John, chapter 20, starting in verse 24. Uh, So if you have a Bible, you can open that up. If you didn't bring one, uh, we do have some Bibles uh, under the seats scattered throughout the room. You can grab one there under your seat and follow along as well. Or you can use your electronic device. Uh, and when you get there, if you are able to this morning, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, uh, we're going to read together. So this is John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. So Providence here, the word of the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, if you believe because you have seen, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see you all. Thanks for everybody who's joining online as well, but it's it's really good to be here in person. 
Um, hope you guys had a good Mother's Day last weekend and that it was enjoyable. Weather's not as great this week, but hopefully last weekend was fun for you. Um, just real quick, as a reminder, and Eric already kind of mentioned some of the guidelines we're trying to follow, but we are trying to do our best to slowly but surely reopen as uh, this, the state uh, gives guidelines to reopen. So, for instance, like tomorrow, I think things change into like a second phase. And so just as a, a, a reminder for us, what we're trying to do is each time that happens, uh, look at the guidelines that are set forth, reassess what we're doing, and try to uh, adapt accordingly. One of the major things, and it's pretty obvious if you just kind of look around, uh, is that we do not have any children's ministry officially right now on Sunday mornings. And so we don't have any plans to really change that until June 1st at the minimum. Uh, but what we're trying to do is just uh, every time another phase rolls around, looking, asking good questions, asking other uh, fellow partner churches, what are you guys doing? And really, we just want to make sure that we're staying safe uh, and also trying to open as quickly as we possibly can. So maybe that was a waste of time, but just letting you know, we don't know anything new. Okay. Having said that, uh, like Eric mentioned, this morning we're continuing our series called Consider Jesus, and really what we've been doing is reflecting on the person and work of Christ. So we've all been forced into kind of this pause, uh, this salah of sorts to, uh, to kind of sit back. In the scriptures, a lot of times when this stuff happens, the Lord's calling his people to return to himself, and so we just said, why don't we take this time to reflect on the person and work of Jesus and the stories of the gospel. And so since Easter, what we've been doing is each time Jesus interacts post-resurrection with his disciples, we've been trying to ask ourselves, what does this tell us about the Lord? Uh, and it's really interesting because why is it that Jesus does this? He, he, he interacts with different disciples at different times. Like last week we talked about Mary Magdalene. And it comes right on the heels of Peter and John running into the tomb. So Jesus could have just showed up and talked to all three of them. That would have been efficient. And yet that's not the way of the Lord. He doesn't do things as efficiently as we would like him. So he legitimately waits for Peter and John to kind of mosey on. Then he interacts with Mary alone. And so we've been talking through each one of these uh, recordings of Jesus interacting after the resurrection. I just want to remind you of a few questions to ask yourself as we walk through the text. And these are kind of good reflection questions. Number one, what does this tell me about Jesus? Like what is this story? Why is it recorded uniquely uh, what does it tell me about Jesus? What kind of king he is? What kind of savior he is? What kind of lord he is? Why would he be doing this and talking like this or asking these questions or interacting in this way? And that's what we're going to be focused on in the story of Thomas, uh, one of the disciples. And Eric already read the text. Now, before I jump in, let me pray for us. Let me ask the Spirit to speak to us through the power of his word. Father, um, thank you. Thank you that your word's true. We don't have to run anywhere else. Thank you that in uncertain times you have provided an anchor for your people. In your written word. And Jesus, thank you that you stand forth from this word from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus, your grace shines forward. Your glory shines forward. Whether it be looking forward to you in the Old Testament, recording what you did in the New or looking forward to what you will do. Jesus, thank you that you stand forward, and we ask you to do the same this morning. And Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts to receive. Encourage those who need to be encouraged this morning, Lord. Exhort those who need to be exhorted this morning. Challenge those who need to be challenged. Heal those who need to be healed. Bind up the brokenhearted if they are brokenhearted. But Holy Spirit, would you meet us exactly where we are, individually and corporately, and speak to us the truth of your word. 
in your power and in your name we pray it. Amen. So Thomas is one of the 12 here, and I just want to start by saying, man, does he get a bad reputation post-resurrection. Like, first of all, we always think of this guy, if you, even if you just Google his name, the first thing that pops up in Google search recommendations is doubting Thomas. That's pretty brutal, all right? You take like the worst moment in this guy's life or one of the moments that he was struggling and you give him a nickname on that basis. Now, I thought about this. I mentioned it to the nine. If you gave me a nickname on the basis of my worst moments following Jesus, it would probably be bad or, or worse than doubting Thomas. You know, there might be like some words in there that are mixed in that are, you know, would, would like, what is it, the vid angel or whatever, just kind of go skip scenes in my life with that nickname because, if you just take the worst moments of our life and that's how you kind, of, you kind of frame everything that we've ever done, that's really brutal. I thought about this. Thomas, being doubting Thomas, totally misses that this guy went on to be a faithful gospel minister. Most people agree that he brought the gospel to India, kind of a big deal. And then also some historians say he might have even been responsible for either sending someone or bringing the gospel to China, another big deal. And the guy died a martyr's death, faithful to Jesus all the way to the end. Kind of a big deal. You know what I read sometimes in some commentaries? Now, this is totally bunk, but nonetheless, some people say Thomas was like the backup plan for Jesus if in case Judas didn't follow through with the betrayal. <laughs> Legit read that. I'm like, that's brutal. It's like if Judas was faithful, he always had Thomas. You know, he could probably step in and have messed this thing up. I'm like, dude, this guy really gets a bad rap. Now, in the book of John, you get three recordings of Thomas's words. And I'm going to read, it, read you a few of those just to kind of prep you for what happens here um, and how people kind of view him in some jaded terms. The first uh, recording of, of Thomas speaking is in the story of Jesus on his way to Bethany in order to raise Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus had been informed that Lazarus was sick. He waited four extra days. He's on his way to raise him from the dead, and he tells his disciples, we're going to go back to Bethany. Now, the disciples are like, wait, we are not really interested in going to Bethany because last time we were there, the Jews tried to stone us and kill us. We probably shouldn't return. Let's hold off, Jesus. If he's already dead, what's the purpose in going? And Jesus says, I'm going to wake him up from his slumber. Basically, I'm going to raise him from the dead. They don't quite catch it. And Thomas is recorded saying, well, let us go and die with him. Now, if you're cynical, you, you read that differently than if you take it at face value. Some people would say, let us go and die with him is a, is a, a statement of faith. It's Thomas saying, like, if Jesus is going to die, remember Peter? If you die, I'll be there and I'll die first. Like, we want to be there with you. We'll be there with you to the very end, Jesus. If they're going to kill you, they're going to kill me too. Some people say that's what Thomas is doing here. Let's die with the Lord. Others who are more cynical say he's saying, well, He's going to his own death, so I guess he just wants to lead us into death too. Let's all go die, go die with Lazarus. So some people think it's like tongue-in-cheek. Tongue in he's being sarcastic, which is why they have a tick against him even before he's doubting Thomas. He's already being a little bit sassy here with the Lord, right? Okay, part two that we see. Most of you know in John 14, one of the most famous uh, quotes, quoted scripture of all the Bible, Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That comes on the heels of Thomas's second uh, quote in the book of John. So Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to my Father to prepare a place for you. And Thomas says, how are we going to know the way to where you're going? Because we can't go where you are. So how will we know the way? And Jesus then states, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. Now, 
again, some people might think he's just asking a genuine question that you and I might ask, which is like, hey, we want to be where you are. How are we going to know the way? But the cynic reads that and says Thomas is saying, you're going to leave us, and you won't even tell us the way to where you're going, so maybe you're not telling me the whole truth. Why don't you give us the roadmap to where you're going? And they think that he's, once again, tick number two or strike two, he's questioning the Lord or getting a little sassy again, right? That's not how I read Thomas in the Gospels. Thomas strikes me as a guy who's a critical thinker but loves the Lord Jesus um, he wants to know more. He asks the deeper questions. He wants to know like two or three layers deep. And that's why I think we find him in the story about doubt because Thomas is, he's wrestling. He's wrestling after the resurrection. But I think there's even more to it than him just wrestling with his skepticism regarding the evidence of the resurrection. And the reason I say that is because this story about Thomas and Jesus' interaction comes on the heels of another story that's really important. It's not going to be put up behind me, so just perk your ears up. I want to read to you the story immediately preceding Thomas in your Bible. If you have it, it's John 20, and I'm going to start in verse 19. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked, and the disciples were afraid of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, and as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And then we get the story of Thomas. So I want you to, I want you to understand where this is framed. Thomas is basically locked in his house. Let's just you know, pretend like we know what that is like in quarantine. He's locked up in his house with the other disciples, terrified to go outside because the Jews might kill them. And he decides he's going to go to H-E-B for the crew. And while he's gone to the grocery store, Jesus shows up. Shows back up, and they're all like, we saw the Lord. He showed us his hands. He showed us his sight. He breathed on us and gave us the Holy Spirit. He told us if we forgive people, they're forgiven. But if we withhold, it's withheld. And Thomas is like, what the heck? Right? Like, he's coming back, and he's like, why didn't Jesus show? Let's all agree Jesus could have shown up before the grocery trip. And he was already there. He could have, Jesus can do whatever he wants to, and he decides he's going to come when Thomas, the Bible records, is the only guy not there. Like he's the only one that's an essential worker that's not there. A little bit frustrating, right? Now, what does it tell us about Jesus? Well, first and foremost, starting in verse 26, when it says eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and this time Thomas is with them. The first thing I pick up on is Jesus is both patient and willing to prove himself, even though he does not have to prove himself. Now, sometimes Jesus' patience can feel to us like Jesus' negligence, can't it? I mean, could you imagine being the eight days where Thomas is having to listen to this stuff? You ever been around a group of your friends that experienced something that you didn't experience, and then they, get, they continue to tell you about it? It's like, oh, we all went to the movies and you were sick. I'm really sorry you're sick. Now, let me proceed to tell you all the fun things that happen without you and the movie and then have inside jokes you know what I mean remember when Jesus did that thing like oh sorry Thomas you weren't there let me reiterate to you what happened that's what's happening to him for eight straight days probably eating at him right and yet waiting for the Lord is pretty much a massive regular repetitive theme of the Bible over and over again we see this so Abraham you're going to be the father of many nations. You're, you will be more blessed than any man that's ever been because from your lineage there will be more children than the stars of the sky or the sands on the, on the 
seashores. You're going to be the man. You're the patriarch. Except what? Except you're going to basically wander around in the Mesopotamian desert for years and that promise not be fulfilled. You're going to be so worried that I'm not going to fulfill this promise that you're going to, your wife is going to say, let's just get Hagar and finish this thing. All right? Abraham waits and waits and waits. Or how about, how about Jacob? Jacob, you're going to wait seven years to marry your beautiful bride, Rachel, and then on the wedding night, you know, it's going to be great until you wake up the next morning and you realize it's Leah, which is bad for both parties because Leah might not have even been interested in that either. And then you're going to fast forward and what, seven more years, and then you're going to be married to two women. It doesn't end up being all that great for you. 14 years of waiting for Jacob. Or what about Joseph? Joseph has a dream. He tells his brothers about the dream. Hey, I had a dream that all of you guys bowed down to me. As a side note, bad idea if you got a sibling to tell that dream. Just keep that one close to the vest. But nonetheless, years of waiting. You're going to be second to Potiphar. Things look good until Potiphar's wife accuses you of something, and then you get thrown into jail. And then even from jail, God uses you to interpret the dream of the baker and the cupbearer, but then even those guys forget you and don't even tell Pharaoh about you until much, much later. And then you have to wait years, even through a famine, before God ever redeems the promise by bringing the brothers back to you where you can confront your brothers. Years of waiting. Or what about Moses? Moses, you're going to be called out, right, from Egypt, and I'm going to save the people of Israel. Pharaoh's finally going to let the people go after a whole lot of craziness. And then you're going to wander around the desert for 40 years. You're not going to go straight to the promised land because that would just be a three-month walk. No, 40-year journey. Could you imagine walking around 40 years and that's a three-month journey? That's depressing, right? That's discouraging. And yet Moses is going to wander around. He's going to get right to the promised land. He's about to enter in. And then God says, no, we're going, to put, we're going to go ahead and bring you home. And Joshua's going to get to go in. Or David, you're going to be anointed king by Samuel. You're 16 years old. But you're going to wait 14 years basically running from the current king who's an evil guy who hates you for no good reason before you ever even have the kingship or the throne. And I can do this forever. This is just the story of the Bible. I'm just going to walk it through the Old Testament. What about Jesus? Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus waits till he's 30 to do any earthly ministry? Talk about inefficiency. We know that at 12 years old, he's talking with the other Pharisees and that they're like, he's smarter than us. He knows the Bible better than us and he's teaching them things they didn't know. And yet Jesus does no earthly ministry till 30. He even almost feels like he almost has to get coaxed into it by his mom, right? The whole wedding at Cana. He's like, mom, you know, it's not my time yet. And she's like, I said, finish this off and put the water into wine, and so finally, he kind of steps into his ministry. Jesus could have been doing that, right? Couldn't he have already been healing people? And How about how many times Jesus causes and requires the people and the disciples to wait on things that seem like they're urgent, right? So I've already mentioned Lazarus. They come to Lazarus, your, your best friend, Lazarus. We find out that's like one of Jesus' best earthly friends. He's sick and he's almost dead. So it says in the Bible that Jesus waited four extra days just to make sure that that got finished off before he ends up making the travel. Mary and Martha are so angry at him that they approach him like, why did you let him die? You knew that he was sick and you didn't show up. Later on, Jairus comes and says, my daughter is sick. You should come and heal her. I know you can heal her. I know the authority that you have. Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, but a woman touches him. But wait a minute, everyone's touching you. You're in the middle of a crowd. Of course people are bumping into you. Hurry up, my daughter's sick. She's on her deathbed. No, I need to know who touched me, who, who touched the hem of my garment. Could you imagine being Jairus? You're like tapping your foot. You're like, this is an intimate moment. It's sweet. Let's move along, right? Important stuff is happening. They show up and tell Jesus, she's dead. Don't, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Jesus legitimately waited for this poor girl to die. Why? So that he could raise her from the dead. 
This is pretty regular in Jesus' ministry. So you get here, Thomas is the only guy gone, and Jesus doesn't show up to him right whenever he's struggling, but he waits eight days before he shows back up. Jesus is patient, but man, does it feel brutal sometimes. Like, we love Jesus' patience when he's patient with us, but when his patience means that we have to be waiting on things that feel dire to actually come to pass, patience feels like a terrible horror to us. And then on the flip side, Jesus is willing to prove things that he has no business proving. Like there's other times where people ask Jesus to perform signs, and he goes, you didn't believe Moses, you're not going to believe me. Moses showed you tons of signs. You guys remember this? The staff throws it down, it becomes a snake. Then he grabs the tail, it becomes a wooden staff. Hand in the coat, comes out, it's leprous. Hand in the coat, comes out, it's clean. You guys remember these? Staff in the Nile, turns into blood. Staff in the Nile, turns clean. Frogs from the sky. Jesus just rebukes these people that are asking for a sign to believe in him. He says, you you wouldn't believe Moses. You're not going to believe me. And yet here, when Thomas says, and I quote, unless he does it the exact same way that he did it for you, I will never believe. And what does Jesus do? The exact same way. Isn't that interesting? I mean, first of all, like, how gracious. The Lord doesn't have to do that stuff. He does not have to prove himself, but he loves Thomas. Now, how does he prove it is the question. Because we already know on one hand how he proves it because he does so physically. But this kind of speaks to what I think is two different reasons or two categories of doubt, both, are, both of which are present in Thomas, but we only focus on one category. And it's because the category that I'm going to mention first is the most prevalent and easy to diagnose on a surface level. And that is Thomas needs rational, empirical evidence of Christ's resurrection. And until he gets it, he's not going to believe. That's, that's the surface, right? That's the first one. That's one way that doubt is manifested. Empirical, rational, evidence-based. If I don't touch, taste, smell, experience Jesus, I will never believe because it's not plausible. And many of us, we think this, right? Or you've experienced this. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've felt that way. Maybe you have friends that say this. And this is the most surface-level category of doubt, and I don't want to just gloss over it. It's very real. We need it. We need rationalization. And that's why I love that the Bible's very explicit here. Jesus proves himself to be all of those things. You're going to get that John actually says, the reason I wrote this down is so you will know that he actually does what Thomas asks, even though he doesn't have to do it. Jesus shows up and says, here's my wrists. Put your hands here. Here's my side. Put your hand here. Later with Peter, what what is he going to do to make sure that he knows he's physically resurrected? They have breakfast together. You know, Casper, like ghosts don't do that. They don't go to Denny's. Jesus shows up on the shores and eats with them. He says, Touch my side, touch my wrist. He's real, physical. Jesus really died, really rose again. That truth has changed the world. It has continued to change the world ever since Jesus rose again. The reason that we have over, you know, three billion Christians in the world is because he really did rise from the dead. Listen, there's been some crazy uh, claims in the world since Jesus, tons of them. No one changed the world like Jesus changed the world. I don't know if you guys, uh, we've been in quarantine, so there's tons of, you know, you can watch Tiger King. The guy... Talk about crazy, right? There's another one, though, Waco, David Koresh. You know what that guy said? He was the Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. David Koresh did some awful things, terrible things. They affected tons of people. Do you know what happened? He doesn't have three billion followers. You know why? Because David Koresh was not the Christ, right? The reason that it's important that it's recorded here is because Jesus really was alive. 
and he proved himself to his disciples, Paul would go on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, he'd say, hey, listen, he showed himself to 500 people at one time. Some of those people are still alive. Go talk to them. Real, physical body. But I also think there's something else here. This is very personal to Thomas. What is he doing? He's telling him exactly what Thomas said, I won't believe unless this happens. He says, Here, here's my wrist. Touch my wrist. Touch my side. What does his wrist and his side represent? This is not just that he died for Thomas, but the very scars in his side and his wrists were because of people like Thomas, like you and me. Jesus was speared. Jesus was nailed because of sin and sinners. That's you and me. He's saying the very scars that you're about to touch, they even exist because I love you. That's, this is personal. It's like, here, touch what I went through. Now, remember, all the disciples scattered, the ones who were very faithful, and they would go all the way to the end. They, didn't, they weren't willing to die for the Lord Jesus, but he was willing to die for them. He shows up, says, here's my side, touch it. And then I love, love, love John 20, verse 30, because what Thomas says is the apex of the gospel of John. John has seven I am statements, right? Why does he do this? Because he wants you to know that Jesus is not just a good guy. He's not just a prophet. He's God. It's why he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus using these I am statements is culminating in John 20. Every commentator says, what Thomas says here is the most explicit statement of faith that you'll ever get in the Gospels. When Jesus says, touch my hands, touch my side, Thomas doesn't go over there and touch him. He just falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. He's not just a good guy. Jesus is God. And in John goes on to record in verse 30, Jesus did many other things, many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written, why? So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you would have life in his name. That's the purpose of the entire book of John, that you would know he truly is Lord and God. The question is, is he my Lord and my God? Is he your Lord and God? And that's what happens with Thomas here. He is who he says he is. And it's by believing that we have now life in his name. We believe in Jesus. He really is in the business of meeting people like this, by the way. This is not. This didn't change after the resurrection. Jesus will walk into the locked door of your heart and take on your biggest doubts head on and meet you. That's who he is. I love that it's a locked door that Jesus walks into, you know, breaking and entering right into their, their upper room. It's because many of us, our doubts... They are our way of locking our hearts against God coming in, and he has every intention of breaking through those locks, and he does so in the least forceful way. Jesus doesn't even have to go through the door. He is the door. He just shows up and says, peace be with you. Could you imagine that? Thomas is probably talking with his boys. They're all giving him all these examples of what just happened with them. He's very frustrated, and then Jesus is there. Peace be with you. Or, in other words, don't freak out. That's like his first words to you. Don't be scared. Because you would be scared. Walks in, peace be with you. This is who God is. He meets us where we are. Now, that's category one. Very real Jesus. He really was a real man who really died, who really lived, really rose again, really is coming back. That's the first category of doubt that Jesus overcomes. But there's a second category that I think is equally as powerful, and it probably undergirds this one, and we don't even realize it. And that is the relational and circumstantial reason for doubt. That is happening here with Thomas, whether you realize it or not. Thomas is probably wrestling with this question. And I ask yourself this. Be honest with yourself. Tell me you wouldn't think this too. 
why in the world would Jesus reveal himself to everybody else but me? Why would he wait till I wasn't in there? Tell me you wouldn't think that. I mean, there's only 11 of you guys left. (laughs) And Jesus waits till you're the only one not there. There's a lot of things probably going on in your heart, right? Am I not worthy? Is there something wrong with me? Am I really the backup to Judas? For real? Why would he not show up? Why would he do this to me? Not only did he do that to me, but he did the very thing that he knows I am. If Thomas, like I said, really is the skeptical guy, he really is the one who needs to know second, third, fourth questions, he needs them answered. Why would he show up to everyone else? Like, we don't get the inclination that Peter needs that stuff. Peter's a guy that's just like, listen, it's good enough for me. The guy walked on water, I believe. That's just what we, it's the kind of feel we get from zealous Peter. He doesn't ask a lot of, like, third-level questions. Peter's more just like, I follow you to the end. I'll kill people. He pulls his sword out, cuts ears off. That's who he is. And yet Peter shows up to him and shows him all the empirical evidence, and Thomas is at the grocery store? Why would he do that? Why would he show up to all the guys that didn't really need it and give them what he needed? This is not something that I think is just merely a byword in this text. I think it's at the very heart. This probably ate at Thomas for eight straight days. And I think Jesus addresses it. First, he addresses, you think you need this, so he gives him the physical, right? Then he addresses the second reason for doubt, and he says this. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they believed. Okay, the word blessed here means two things. One, we get it in the Beatitudes, and it's uh, happy are those, joyful are those, satisfied are those. And then Jesus in the Beatitudes will give you all the different ways of the kingdom. So joyful, he's talking about joy. Joyful are those who believe and don't see. But there's another meaning of the word blessed here, which is favor upon those. God's favorable eye upon those who don't see and yet they believe. That's the same word that is used for Noah when God chooses him to be in the ark in a worldwide flood. Can we agree that would be a good thing to have? The kind of favor that Noah had when the world was going to get a big deluge favor upon those who don't see and yet they believe. I want to read this quote. There's, a, there's, this, there's this book, and it is, um, many of you may have read it, some of you may have not. It's called The Screwtape Letters, and it's by a guy named C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book uh, from the perspective, uh, it's about spiritual warfare, and he wrote this fictional book about uh, spiritual warfare from the perspective of a head demon who was training an undersecretary demon on the ways to tempt humankind. So this, it's basically this diary back and forth between uh, Screwtape writing to Wormwood, which is an undersecretary demon. And I, will, I kid you not, you have to put the book down sometimes because of how astute it really is into spiritual warfare in the minds and hearts of human beings. And this in particular is about the idea of doubt and struggling when you don't know what God is doing. This is from... Screw tape to his undersecretary demon. If you see the words, your enemy, it's him talking about God because the enemy of Satan is God, okay? Now listen. It says, do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy or to do God's will, looks around upon the universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and then asks why God has forsaken him and still obeys. Does that sound familiar to any stories in the Bible for, for you? How about this one? Have you considered my servant Job? 
And Satan says, of course you, of course Job worships you. It's because you, you protect him. You won't let me do anything to him. You won't let me terrorize him. You won't let me torment him. And so God relinquishes and allows Job to be tormented in the worst of possible ways. And you remember what Job says? Though he slay me, yet I will worship him. Naked I came into this world, and naked shall I leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His wife says, curse God and die, you fool. Do you not know that you're hated by God? And he says, no. He feels forsaken. He questions. He asks God why. He never, never, never curses God. Ray Ortland, a pastor, he writes this as he reflects on C.S. Lewis's words in Screwtape tape Letters, he says, I believe the Lord takes every one of his children to this place of bare trust in his word. Without it, we would remain shallow. Through it, we emerge more deeply surrendered to God as God, more deeply settled and quietly certain and surprisingly satisfied. I'm going to read those words again to you, and I want you to think of the word blessed. More deeply settled, quietly certain, surprisingly satisfied. I also believe that many of us are in that place of intense pressure right now. And then he says this, God will keep us. I think that Thomas here is not just being rebuked by Jesus for his unbelief. I think he's being invited by Jesus into blessedness. He's being invited by Jesus into something that he never would have had had God simply, had Jesus shown up with Thomas there, he wouldn't have had this experience this opportunity of intimacy, this opportunity of relationship, this opportunity of union with Christ in the midst of not knowing what the heck God is up to, but trusting his heart anyway. There's blessedness there. It means there's a blessing for every Christian who doesn't understand the hand of the Lord, doesn't see a trace of it. But like Spurgeon said, when we cannot trace his hand, we always trust his heart because God is good. And I love that C.S. Lewis, he, he tuned in on this idea that Satan has a way of creating doubt by, go, by leading into those moments and trying to convince us we ought not worship and obey God when you cannot trace his hand. And yet Thomas here is getting a lesson not just for himself but for us. And so I want to close with this thought this morning. Do you need the Lord to walk into the locked door of your heart and reveal to you his side? Here's what the promise of the scriptures tell us. He will do it, but he may wait eight days. And so I encourage you this morning, trust him while you wait. He will, he is always faithful to prove himself over and over, although he does not have to. He's faithful. So as he wait, as we wait eight days, whatever the eight days is, because eight days could be eight years, or it could be 40 years like Abraham or Moses. But as we wait, let us lean into their invitation of relationship with Jesus because it's there that we'll find life in his name. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you're gracious to us. When, when people doubt us, Lord, we... Write them off. But when we doubt you, Jesus, you show up and call us in. Thank you, Jesus, that you're more like, you're not like us. That your character is sure, that your character is steady. Your loving hand is ever outstretched to us. And for those under the sound of my voice, my, my friends, whether it's 
here in person or whether they're hearing us online, for those who cannot trace your hand, Jesus, would you remind them we can trust your heart and that you're near to us. We can trust that you're doing good for us, Lord. So help us to do it. Help us to trust you. And Lord, in due time, would you just walk into the locked door of our heart and reveal your hands, reveal your side. Let us have those powerful moments of reminder that you truly are the risen Lord, that everything has changed. We are not an old creation bound to sin, but we're new. And Lord, I I ask you finally, as I asked when I started, would you heal the brokenhearted that need to be healed, exhort, challenge, encourage. Do what only you can do this morning with your word. And as we worship, would you bring freedom?